God has a plan. This plan is known as his sovereign eternal decree. How far reaching is this plan? We're told in Ephesians 1.11 that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. This plan is holy, wise, and unchangeable and for his own glory. But even more amazing is God is working this plan out. It's one thing to have a plan. I remember as a kid growing up and reading about the the five-year plans in the USSR and in China. Magnificent agricultural plans for increased output, but those plans never came to pass. But our God's plan always comes to pass. His decree is always worked out, and that is what's known as providence. Listen to what our catechism says. By the way, if your children, if your preschool children and elementary school children aren't in catechids, they're not learning our doctrine. They're not learning our theology. Listen to what question 11 asks. What are God's works of providence? The answer comes back. God's works of providence are his most holy wise and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Providence means that God rules over everything and does so according to his plan. He currently rules over 8 billion people on earth and countless billions in another realm beyond the grave, and he does so with ease. Nothing is too small or too large to escape God's governing hand. The spider building his web in the corner right now and General Sherman marching his army across Georgia are both fully under his control. In fact, we're even told, and this will become very important in just a moment, even things that you think are random and chance occurrences. For example, the writer of Proverbs says, Proverbs 16.33, the lot. The lot is cast, but it's under God's control. The raising up and putting down of rulers is God's control, according to Romans 13. It was the early church father, Augustine, who said, If anything is left to chance, then the whole world is aimlessly whirled about. That's why R.C. Sproul used to say with great delight, There is not one errant or random molecule in all of the globe. Providence, God's providence, especially benefits the elect. Listen to what we're told in Romans 8. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Believer, there's not one detail in the universe which will not accrue to your good, whether it be devils or angels or bad things or pleasant things. Scripture doesn't deny that bad things exist and they will happen to believers The Holy Spirit simply says that God is controlling all things to serve his wise and holy purpose. The doctrine of providence can only be true if God is sovereign, having the right and power to do as he pleases, omnipotent, having no limitations on his power whatsoever, omnipresent, being in all places with his whole being, and omniscient, knowing all things past, present, and future. The doctrine of God's providence, that he controls everything according to his eternal decree, is meant to amaze you and humble you. You and I are not strong or prosperous because of our strength or intellect. The sovereign Lord has providentially sustained you and I and given us every breath we've ever taken. 
Now, I must say more about providence this morning. God intends for his providence to be meditated upon. Why do I raise the subject of providence? Because I want us for the next five sermons to meditate and marvel on the providence of God in the incarnation of Christ. And so let me just give you a a listing, a digest of what we'll be considering God helping us over the next five sermons. This morning, we'll look at the providence of God in the preparation of a forerunner. Next Sunday, we'll look at the providence of God in the virgin conception. On December 18th, we'll look at the providence of God in the journey to Bethlehem. At our Christmas Eve service in the evening of December 24th, we'll look at the providence of God in the mysterious visitors. And on Christmas morning, on December 25th, we will look at the providence of God in the protection of the infant Jesus. Now, the reason why we'll do this is because frequently in Scripture, we are told to meditate on God's providence. I found that many confessing Christians never meditate on anything. But here are five reasons why you must meditate on God's mighty, sovereign, working out of his plan, his providence. Let me give you five reasons why. Five reasons why you ought to come along for the ride for the next five sermons. Five reasons why this ought to catch your interest and you think it's worthy of hearing and remembering. The first is meditation on the mighty acts of God and his intervention on behalf of his people causes the believer to want to worship. Listen to what the psalmist writes in Psalm 66. This is an imperative. Come and see the works of God. He's awesome in his doing towards the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. There we'll rejoice in him. Oh, bless our God, you peoples. You see, the psalmist says, if you come and see, if you come and study the scriptures and see what God has done by his providence, it will make you fall down in adoration. If you're not a very zealous worshiper this morning, the solution to that is to meditate on the providence of God. That will stir your heart to worship. A second reason why you should meditate on the providence of God is meditating on the providence of God is our comfort in times of trouble. Once again, listen to the psalmist in Psalm 77. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night. But I will remember the works of the Lord. I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work. You see, the psalmist said, when I'm in trouble, I'm going to stop and I'm going to open my copy of God's word and I'm going to remember all the times God delivered his people from trouble and I will be comforted. A third reason why you should meditate. Meditation on the providence of God is the antidote to fear and worry. There's some of you here who think the only antidote to my anxiety is just to chew my fingernails to the bone, to fill myself with medication, medicate myself into numbness. But Scripture gives a different way to deal with fear and worry, and that is to meditate on the providence of God. Listen to what Jesus says about this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And here comes his providence meditation commands. Look at, consider them, 
Meditate upon what God is doing around you. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Consider more meditation on providence. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. The fourth reason why you should meditate on God's providence is meditation on the providence of God is prudent since God judges those who thoughtlessly ignore his providence. The psalmist writes once again in Psalm 28, he speaks of the judgment of the wicked and he says, they will be judged because they do not regard the works of the Lord nor the operation of his hands, he will destroy them. The Puritan Stephen Sharnock said, it's atheism of the highest sort not to think God's actions are worth our most serious thought and consideration. A fifth reason why you should meditate on the providence of God. Meditating on the providential works of God is the mark of the wise man. Again, Psalm 28 says, whoever is wise will observe these things and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. A wise man will be known by his careful study of the providential hand of God. All others are blind fools. The wise man, you see, doesn't think that the world moves on by fortune, luck, or chance, or randomness. He knows that the sovereign God is is controlling all things by his providence, and he delights to consider them over and over again. Now, what I'm going to ask you to do this morning is to, instead of letting some of the words just wash over you and a lot pass you by, is to go to work with me. I remind you on a regular basis that hearing a sermon well involves not only the the preacher sweating in the pulpit, but the listener sweating in the pew. And so you'll need your Bible. You'll need it open because what we're going to do is I want to walk you through one, and we'll look at four others in the sermons to come, one mighty act of God's providence in the incarnation, the preparation of a forerunner. Of course, the greatest acts of God's providence occur in the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the subject we'll give ourselves to for this month. Now, a moment ago in our Old Testament reading, and I want you to begin to see, not that any of us can grasp, but maybe we can just sort of see the fringes of God's might and amazement. I want you to look at how long this plan had been in operation. A moment ago, we read Genesis 3.15. And we saw there where God promised a redeemer in Genesis. This promise was made immediately to the serpent after the fall of Adam and Eve, where the serpent was told, the redeemer will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That was 4,500 years before the incarnation. 4,500 years until it could be said, those words we read just a moment ago in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had then come, God sent forth his son. Now I want you to think about this, this 4,500 year gap between when the promise was made in Genesis 3.15 and when the promise was fulfilled in the giving of the son. It's easy or it's, it's helpful for us to think in terms of 15 events between the time of the promise given and the promise fulfilled. Think with me about this chronology of 15 
events. Fifteen steps. Step one, the universal flood and the Noahic covenant. We read about them in Genesis 6 through 9 where God judges the whole world and this new beginning under one family with God's promise not to destroy the earth again by a flood. But Genesis 3.15 is still operative. Step two, God divides the nations at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, judgmentally scattering and dividing the nations and confusing their languages. But God's promise of a redeemer still holds. Step three, now only 1,800 years before Christ, with the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and following, God chooses one family from which to enact his redemptive plan. The Savior, the the promised one who will crush the head of the serpent, must come from this family, the Abrahamic family. Step four, the patriarchal period. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We see God slowly growing his covenant people. Step five, and at this point you think, well, the promise has been forgotten. Because the covenant people of God are sent into bondage in Egypt. God's people are in slavery under cruel taskmasters. That's the great picture of what it means to be lost. Bondage, slavery, and oppression. And then step six, our heart begins to stir as we think, maybe God hasn't forgotten his promise because step six is the Exodus in Exodus 13 through 15. The motif of redemption of the Old Testament. Repeatedly, God's prophets would look back to the miraculous deliverance from bondage in Egypt and say, that was our God who did that. Then the seventh step, God gives his covenant people a law in Exodus 20, the Mosaic covenant, the Ten Commandments, and the priesthood and sacrifice and Sabbath. And then once again, God's people think, they despair and think, oh no, God has forgotten his promise because they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. A whole generation except for two men dies. And then step nine, God's people come into the land finally, the promised land under Joshua. Step 10, once again, God's people think God has forgotten his promises There's no way that he can bring forth a redeemer out of this people because we see wholesale apostasy in the time of the judges. Whether they were led by Gideon or Samson, this epoch in the history of God's people is summed up by those mournful last words of the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Then once again, you notice this roller coaster effect in the Old Testament. Step 11, the Lord begins to raise up kings. Saul, David, Solomon. The people of God clamor for a king like the other nations around them. And so God grants their request. Now we're getting close. David's reign is around 1000 BC. And his son Solomon constructs this glorious temple for worship. Step 12. Once again, the people of God's hopes are dashed when the kingdom divides into two kingdoms, the northern and southern. Step 13, the northern kingdom ends in captivity by Assyria in the year 722 B.C. after 250 years of steady apostasy. Step 14, the southern kingdom ends in captivity by Babylon in 586 B.C. And finally now, this tiny glimmer of hope in step 15. The people of Israel, a remnant returns to Israel after a 70-year captivity in Babylon, 
A new temple is quickly constructed, but in no way compares to the former glory of Solomon's temple. Discouragement and decline set in. It's now been 4,000 years since the promise of a redeemer in Genesis 3.15. And with the last words of the Old Testament, God renews the hope of Israel by this promise. Look at Malachi chapter 3 and notice the promise God makes to his people. Tucked away in the last prophet of the Old Covenant, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, where the Lord promises a forerunner to the Messiah who will come and, and be the one who brings the gospel. But we have not only the promise of a Messiah, but of a forerunner for the Messiah. Look at the promise in Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way for me. Now, after Malachi prophesied, there were no more prophets for 400 years, the silent period, to a nation which had become accomplished or accustomed to, to one prophet per generation. This absence was shocking. But now, no matter how chaotic things looked, all things were coming to pass just as God ordained. The Father was setting the stage for the entrance of His Son into the world. Nothing was overlooked, no expense was spared. The preparation for this grand drama was not the work of a few days or even years. God's preparation for what Paul calls the fullness of time was the work of several millennia in the making. This included social, political, religious, economic, and even philosophical elements. It ranged from individuals to international preparations. Think of just three of the preparations that you can look at. Any secular historian can look at and say, wow. Everything, it's like the stars are all lining up. What a great coincidence. For example, we can see God's providence in politics. The groundwork for the, the dominance of a single amalgamating political influence had been laid with each successive world empire over the centuries. From Assyria to Babylon to Medo-Persia to Greek, the Greek Empire and now Rome. Each empire expanded the borders of the previous one and expanded the number of provinces and peoples under its influence. So this unprecedented size of the Roman Empire was centuries in the making, and God was working to this end through the millennium preceding the birth of Christ. Rome at peace, what was known as the Pax Romana, the period during which Christ was born, provided ideal circumstances for the spread of the message of a redeemer. A second providential circumstance, providence in commerce. In order to transport their troops rapidly and to transport information efficiently, the Roman Empire devised an unprecedented system of communication and transportation. God directed this building of this system in order to facilitate the movement of his armies and ambassadors for the communication of his message. The Romans had constructed this brilliantly engineered network of roads, some of which survive to this day, which made accessible the furthest reaches of the known and conquered world. The Romans also, amusingly enough, had put into place an efficient postal system, which expedited the spread of God's correspondence to man through the New Testament letters. 
And then a third providential circumstance, providence in language. By the time John the Baptist came on the scene, heralding the way for Jesus, a single universal language throughout the empire was the enduring legacy of Alexander the Great's conquest three centuries before. Greek was the common language throughout the Roman Empire, enormously facilitated the rapid, widespread communication of the gospel. It was during this time, the 400 years prior to the coming of Christ, that not only did we have the promise of a Redeemer, we'd had that for 4,000 years. But 400 years before the Incarnation, the Lord says to Malachi in an offhanded fashion in Malachi 3.1, Oh, by the way, I will send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way for me. So after 400 years of silence came the word that a prophet was preaching and baptizing. We are told in Mark chapter 1, that was the time when all Jerusalem and Judea went out to see and hear this one. This, This text, Malachi 3 verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger is an absolute reference to John the Baptist. We know this where Jesus says so. Look at Luke chapter 7. I told you you're going to have to do a little work this morning in your copy of God's Word. Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, pick up the narrative at verse 24. When the messengers of John the Baptist had departed, Jesus began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he, look what Jesus is quoting, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Notice what Jesus says. He says, by the way, if you're wondering about the fulfillment of Malachi 3.1, that messenger who had come before the Redeemer, it's John the Baptist. Notice what Jesus calls him. In Luke 7, verse 26, he calls him more than a prophet. How can someone be more than a prophet? Well, they can both be a prophet and the subject of prophecy. Jesus connects the dots for his hearers and says, John the Baptist is not only a great prophet himself, but he is the person of whom Malachi was speaking of in Malachi 3, verse 1. In fact, look what Jesus says in Luke 7, 28. He says that John the Baptist is the greatest prophet, greater than Moses and Samuel, greater than Elijah and Elisha, greater than Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, greater than the writing prophets or the the predicting prophets or the preaching prophets, greater than those who brought revival and those who brought ruin. Jesus says so here in Luke 7, 28. John the Baptist is the greatest. Why? Because he's the forerunner of the Messiah. He did exactly what a herald must do. He clearly announced the arrival of the Messiah. He directed everyone's attention to him. Do you remember what John the Baptist loved to say? Whenever he would physically see Jesus, he pointed to him in John chapter 1 and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This same John the Baptist emphasized the necessity of conversion, including repentance, as the only way for sinners to enter the kingdom of God. Do you remember what he said in Matthew chapter 3? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when his task was done, no awkward hanging around, he gladly receded to the background, like a forerunner should, when the coming one comes upon the scene. John resisted any and all temptation to call attention to himself. And his life's motto was those glorious words of John 3.30. Jesus must increase and I must decrease. The task of this messenger, according to other prophecies, such as those in Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 57, the task of this messenger, we are told, is to prepare the way. To prepare the way was standard practice before a visit of an ancient Near Eastern king. It meant to to smooth the roads, to to remove any bumpy stones, to get rid of any obstacle or stumbling block that might be in the way. The ministry of John the Baptist, who came to be the forerunner, was aimed at a massive house cleaning in Israel. Spiritually, Israel was in no condition to welcome their heavenly king. So John began his ministry before Jesus began his. John's ministry, according to Matthew 3, consisted of calling everyone to repentance and saying, After me is coming one so mighty, I'm not worthy to carry his sandals, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Let me remind you how John the Baptist burst onto the scene. Look at Luke chapter 1. I told you you'd have to work some this morning. You'll probably need a nap this afternoon to recover from all this. John the Baptist, of course, since we're talking about providence, didn't just appear from nowhere. He comes from the covenantal heritage of Zacharias and Elizabeth. We read about them beginning in Luke 1, verse 5. Through seven, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. Now think about the setup for our Lord's forerunner. Parents. Great parents come from a priestly heritage. Both Zacharias and Elizabeth come from priestly families. But they're infertile. We're told they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. And we're told they're old. They are advanced in years. And so both Zacharias and Elizabeth now consider themselves past time ability to conceive. But we're told of their maturity and sanctification. We're told that they're righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And then comes the revelatory incident. Now remember, think chronologically with me. For 4,000 years, God's people had been told a Redeemer was coming, ever since Genesis 3.15. And then, just almost at the end, just, just 400 years before the Redeemer came, the Lord gives a prophecy. Oh, by the way, I'm sending a messenger. I'm sending a forerunner. I'm sending a way maker, one who will come before the Redeemer. And so Israel's looking for him first. And now we're told 
this one is going to be the son of Zacharias and Elizabeth. And notice how this will happen. Look at verses 8 through 17 of Luke chapter 1. It happens, the, the information, the revelation of John the Baptist's birth to this barren old couple comes in the course of Zacharias serving his priestly duties. Twice a year, each division of priests was on duty in the temple, and each time the period of service was one week. And we're told in Luke 1, verse 8 and 9, while Zacharias was serving as a priest, he's in Jerusalem before God, according to the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell. You know what a lot is? They're like dice in the Old Testament, casting of lots. His lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And so it's not by chance, by the way, for those of you who are thinking, oh, wasn't this Zacharias's lucky day? Is the great 20th century theologian John Murray who said the words luck and chance have no place in the Christian man's vocabulary. And he was right. Because remember what we're told in Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God, by his providence, even ordains that even the throwing of dice, the casting of lots, the spinning of the roulette wheel, the picking of a a piece of paper out of a hat, that too is ordained providentially by him. And so look what we read in Luke 1 verse 9. It's Zacharias' day by lot to burn incense. It's not by chance that Zacharias has this duty. It's God's providence. And so Zacharias enters into the holy place. He's at the altar of incense. He's so privileged, by the way, as a priest, you could only do this one time, where twice a day incense was offered, in the morning and the evening. It's there in the holy place that Zacharias is met by the angel Gabriel. Look at what happens in verse 12. Zacharias is troubled as the angel comes to meet him there. And fear falls upon him. He realizes this is a person from another world, a person of pure holiness and power. This is, by the way, the first revelation of God in 400 years. No one had heard from God since the days of the prophet Malachi. And what does Gabriel tell Zacharias? Look carefully at verses 13 through 17. Your prayers are heard. You're going to have a son, gender specific, not just a child. You're to name him John, meaning God is gracious. You and everyone else, according to verse 14, will rejoice over him. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord, great in holiness, great in service to our God, great in kingdom usefulness. He'll not drink wine or strong drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, just like Jeremiah was in Jeremiah 1. And he'll be the agent of conversion for many Israelites. Look at verse 16. He's going to be a mighty evangelist. And then look at the pinnacle of what Gabriel tells him. In verse 17, he will also go before him, that is the Redeemer, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You notice there that Gabriel quotes Malachi 4. And Zacharias, as a priest who knew the word of God well, could not have missed the fact that Gabriel was citing Malachi again, repeating the words of the last promise God made to Israel. 
Nine months later, John the Baptist is born, just as the angel said. And now it's Zacharias doing the prophesying. Look further back in Luke chapter 1 at verse 68 through 80. Zacharias, who's been quiet for nine months, struck dumb for nine months, now opens his mouth, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied. Pick up that prophecy in verse 68 where Zacharias, and I want you to notice what he says to his son. He says to him in verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. In other words, here's old Zacharias. You probably didn't want him to hold your child because he's too shaky. He's so old. But he's holding his son, his newborn son, John the Baptist. And he says to him, look at verse 76, these words of prophecy. He's saying, son, you are the fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi 3.1. You're going to be the forerunner, the way maker. You will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Look what Zechariah specifically says. He says in verse 76, you'll be a prophet. There had been no prophet in Israel for four centuries. He says in verse 76, you'll be the forerunner. He's the, this one, this infant that he's holding will smooth the path, prepare the way. But a forerunner has to step aside. And John the Baptist gladly does that. He rejoices to say in John chapter 3, I am not the Christ. He must increase, I must decrease. A forerunner had to be a man of downward mobility. He had to know how to get out of the way when the, the king arrived. But look at what John will do. Look at verse 77. When Zacharias looks at his son and utters this prophecy to him, he says, You, son, will give the knowledge of the forgiveness of sins. He says this, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Indeed, the first thing we know about John when he begins his public ministry in Luke 3 is that he's preaching a baptism of repentance. John's forerunner ministry is for the, the purpose of highlighting men's awareness about their sins and their need for forgiveness of sin. Because the way of salvation is always through the forgiveness of sins. There is no other way. So look at what John's next three decades would be like. Look at verse 66 in Luke chapter 1. Those last words we read, The hand of the Lord was with him. And then in verse 80 of the same chapter, The child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the desert till the days of his manifestation to Israel. This John is filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. He now goes off the scene for 30 years until Luke chapter 3. He's much like Moses in his 40 years of quiet preparation, or much like Paul during his Arabian years. John goes now for 30 years of preparation for his brief Roman candle-like preparatory minister, where he's the forerunner. And then when he burst onto the scene, he arouses the attention of all Israel by his clothing, by his diet, by his directness, and by his message. He set all of Israel thinking. He set their hopes in motion. He awakened their consciences. His very first utterance was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He showed them their sin and their need for cleansing. 
He pointed out the nature of true religion that it didn't consist in ethnicity and genealogies. He preached spiritual realities, such as bearing the fruit of repentance. He declared the grace and power of Christ, and he was no doubt about it. He was the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3. My messenger will prepare the way before me. According to Luke 1, not only will this John the Baptist be before Jesus, he will be his herald and his forerunner. He will announce Jesus to the world, all according to God's providence. Let me briefly apply this to you. The Father so loved you before time that he ordered affairs 5,000, 6,000 years ago to carefully send a Savior who would redeem a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so you nor anyone else could miss this Savior. The Lord, according to his providence, sent a messenger, a sign carrier, a pointer, a forerunner, whose only job would be, look at him. He's the Savior. He's the one who crushed the serpent's head. Repent and believe in him. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we praise you for this mighty providence of yours. That not only have you ordained all things that come to pass, now you're working your plan perfectly. And so let this truth move us to worship and a deeper trust in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.